Welcome back to our growing experiment. We're here with Brittany and Ivan from the Ugly Barn Farm. So do you guys want to tell us a little bit about yourselves? Oh, wait, we should back up and show them our tacky t-shirt matching. Yeah. <laughs> we planned it. We did plan it. Yeah. It wasn't an accident. Yeah. Uh, you want to go ahead? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm Brittany. I'm one of the owners of the Ugly Barn Farm, um, kind of. Yeah. Mm. I do a lot of unpaid work. And <laughs> <laughs> um, you go ahead. Um, so we're a small scale mushroom farm. Uh, we grow indoors year round uh, up to 19, possibly 20 different species now, not all at the same time. We'll cycle them through with, uh, with the seasons. Um, we also have some outdoor growing um beds i guess somewhat with uh king strafaria and then some uh some temporary structures that we grow in on the shoulder seasons um, so mostly spring and fall yeah spring and fall we we grow through the summer but like uh weather isn't great for growing because it's really hot and they're outdoor structures it's they're like tempo garages right Okay. So we can't, we can't like cool the area down. We can't do anything that's, uh, that'd be required to get more yields or uh, better product out of that. So shoulder seasons are best because the temperatures are right. Bugs aren't around. Um, so we do that. And uh, then the other thing, the other mushroom focus that we don't cultivate but we do a lot of foraging our family and our mm -hmm. farm as well just for our not so much for business but a lot for mental health um we do some education so some courses and things like that in the fall um and somewhere that's where we'd like to keep going so we probably have well over 19 or 20 species with what we forage as well mm -hmm. for mushrooms oh wow and also just oh sorry go ahead no, 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 I was just uh, saying, oh, wow, yeah, that's it. Oh. <laughs> Sorry to derail you. <laughs> um, the courses also, uh, like the foraging courses that we give out, definitely help to um, just make people more aware of what's out there and, and help strengthen the, the whole food community here in the north. I find a lot of people are doing it uh, in North Bay and uh, I think a few other people are doing it here in Sudbury, which is great because like you mentioned, you have uh, a focus on resiliency. And I think this definitely is one of those things that uh, helps out with that. Yeah. So you were mentioning that you do a lot of the foraging yourself and you were saying that the 20 species up to maybe that you were foraging. That's why I said, oh, wow. Cause I was thinking like on top of what you guys have for a variety that you're growing and cultivating, you also have access to this variety because you have that knowledge in, in, in the wilderness there. So like yeah. um, that, that must, must also be like uh, dependent on the seasons too, when you're harvesting those mushrooms and stuff. So like, what would you sort of start out with in the spring and then go through uh for, the, for the, the picking, I mean, sorry. Yeah, well, with the focus mostly being on mushrooms, we hunt for morels in the spring, but we never find them. Yeah, we're so, the worst morel uh, foragers ever. But that's generally what you would start with. 
um, oyster mushrooms, which are cultivated species as well, do really well in the spring. Um, so you can find those in the wild as well, but we don't usually pick them from the wild. They're usually pretty buggy. So we stick with the, the cultivated ones um, and just do a second flush or third flush outside. Back. And then pheasant back is one of the wild species. They do grow on wood, so we can cultivate them. We've brought some logs from ones that had fa been fallen trees back to the farm and kind of put them in a similar environment. So we get pheasant back mushrooms sometimes growing. Um, and those are friends of ours have called them the morel consolation prize because they uh, are nowhere near as good as morels, but they're pretty nice consolation prize when you're hunting and they grow, uh, although they don't grow in the soil, like um, in the ground, they grow in wood, they tend to grow similar. You'd be time hunting frame. in the same areas. Yeah. And then the same time frame. So. Habitat and time frame for yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, spring is not limited for mushrooms there's quite a few other ones those are the biggest ones that we've found in enough quantity mm -hmm. to make it like uh, exciting but it just kind of starts to remind you that it's that time of year um what the summer will bring reishi is a medicinal mushroom that you pick in late spring so uh like a about june depending on the year uh it can be late june or early june um not so good for eating no it's like shoe leather like a, like a really bitter shoe leather. Okay. So you do, you do extracts with that one. You don't so much uh, cook with it. Right. Some, some folks will throw it in soup and broths and uh, things like that. So you can get a good uh, water extract out of it, but it is very bitter. Yeah. It's, it's not a gourmet eating one. That's no. for sure. Highly medicinal. So tinctures are great. Um, Teas are tolerable. Foods are disgusting. <laughs> and the first time we found that one, um, we started looking because it was the right season for it. We knew where to look. They grow the, the wild species that we have here grow specifically on a dead or dying hemlock. And the first time we found it, it was like um, like this glowing yeah. mushroom on a log the sun was like coming through the trees onto this fallen log covered in moss and the ratio was just like like the canopy out. was thick enough to create like a, a really nice shaded area yeah just at this spot but just at that like one spot yeah there was through. sun just illuminated the reishi it was awesome yeah it's like kind that. of funny how uh if you give nature to give you a chance you do get sort of a storybook moment like that eh like yeah. that's kind of a, a cool thing to have it happen just like that where you're like oh wow there it is right there with the sun yeah. right on it <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i just wanted to introduce naga this is our farm our farm dog he's a pest that loves as much love as he can possibly get even though he was meant to be a farm dog stays outside he doesn't yeah, he spends winters he's, inside. He's though. now aging and has decided that he's a house dog. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have a great Pyrenees here at home and we're in the city. So another farm dog, but does well in the house. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. They like their outside time. That's for sure. But he does yeah. like the cuddles that come along with being an inside dog. So, so what are yeah. the mushrooms that you guys sell and uh, the species that you have? Oh, we've got, like I said, 19 or 20. Mm -hmm. So I'll start off. Oh, also, I, I just want to step back. Uh, when I said the food is disgusting with the reishi, I was 
doing it just to kind of be funny, but you, you could put reishi in like brownies and stuff like that and actually make it taste good. And like I said, some people put it in soups in smaller quantities and it balances nicely. So I just want to go back to that, but anyhow, (laughs) so the species we grow, um, I think we have like seven or eight different types of oysters. Oysters are definitely the easiest mushroom to grow. They're super forgiving. They grow very aggressively, which makes them uh, a great competitor against other molds, which is always what you're fighting against, right? Like um, that's why you have to do it in an environment that's uh, HEPA filtered, free of, mostly free of other contaminants. Mm -hmm. But uh, oysters just happen to do that very well. So we have like brown oysters, yellow oysters, occasional pink oysters, um, king oysters, black oysters, white oysters. I'm not going with the Latin names either. I'm just saying that so I don't come off as too much of a nerd. (laughs) But if you want the Latin names, I'll give you those. Um, God, what other oysters we have? I think there's just a few other like phenotypic variable ones. they're the same species, but they vary slightly in color. These are actually distinct species that. Yeah. Um, well, the black oyster and the white oyster are, are actually. Uh, elm oyster. Though. Yeah, the elm oyster is a little bit different for sure. Um, but I don't know if I agree with you fully that, but it's an easy one to grow in terms of like lab culturing and growing it out on blocks. But sometimes it can actually be a really tricky one to grow because in the summer, it that one is the most finicky for temperature. Mm. When it gets too hot, it grows, it, you and get really poor quality mushrooms. And then really in the winter, with, with when it's minus 30 outside, it still needs like as much fresh air um, exchange as it can get. And so it can be really tricky to... Uh, mm. properly ventilate the rooms although they cool down enough that it's not as much of an issue but it's as long as the temperatures aren't too high in the building itself um it's not that big of an issue we have a better time growing it in the winter time yeah it's a lot easier to grow it in the winter time i find fresh air exchanges you have to you don't have to give them as much the cooler it is like we yeah slower but that's right so it produces so we're kind of jumping all over the place here that's, that's fine. Great. Okay, cool. that's okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, mushrooms will throw off CO2 as they grow, um, as they incubate, as they colonize or myceliate the substrate, they'll throw off CO2. Uh, even, even when they're fruiting, they'll throw off CO2. And that CO2 is detrimental to their growing. So you need lots of fresh air. So as, as they develop in a high CO2 environment, their stems tend to get uh, very lanky because they're growing to, to search for that fresh air, right? So they'll get longer and longer until they find it and then they'll develop their um, their caps, their pileus. Uh, but as a result of using a lot of that energy to develop their stems, their caps are often like stunted uh, and they just, they don't look like your typical mushroom would. Right. Um, that just kind of made me think, and maybe this is like, I don't quite understand it as well, but um, so like say the mushroom gives off a lot of CO2 and I guess maybe this, this uh, environment wouldn't lend to that, but like, you know how plants really like CO2. Like I would almost think like if you had plants and say mushrooms growing sort of next to each other, there's sort of uh, a reciprocal uh, relationship there, but I don't know if that's like good for say the mushroom or if I, I, just, yeah. I just think of that. I, I, 
so there's definitely ways to do that um I think the reason a lot of people don't do it is like the introduction of pathogens, right? Like bacteria yeah, from, um, or even pests, like if there's any soil-based, if it's soil-based growing with the plants, right. um, there's a lot of uh, like flies and things like that in the soil that will love to eat mushrooms. I think that's one of the main reasons. I, I think so, that's a big contributing factor. Yeah, both I feel would have to be done in a fairly sterile environment where the soil is even somewhat sterilized to prevent any fungus gnats or any other molds from getting from the plant room to your mushroom room and right. then vice versa you don't want too many spores from your mushroom room getting into uh your plant room and causing whatever you know right. any sort of contamination there but if you did filter both sides um you could easily calculate the volume of co2 produced based on your pounds of substrate and species because they they differ right some right. species produce more co2 than others right uh, you can calculate that co2 and then grow uh whatever number of plants that you that you could sustain on that level of co2 um, mm. what those calculations are i have no idea that's just kind of interesting as a project. If you turned a mushroom room into a CO2 generator for a grow room, say. Yeah, yeah you definitely could. It's pretty neat. Other mushroom farmer friends uh, talked about doing some like algae growing, like a medicinal algae growing experiment. Um, and those ones, um, and that way you wouldn't need like a soil-based media. You would just have it sort of growing in like glass jars or something like that anyways we had spoken about but right. um, yeah algae so will also produce that co2 that no they'll produce oxygen oh they photosynthesize that's right. too that's right Ooh, mm -hmm. embarrassing <laughs> um, i didn't catch on but I, think, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good segue to talk about um like go step oh, back a little bit let's, and talk let's about keep talking about what we grow all the species that we grow okay this yeah, is sorry, two cups of coffee and too too much <laughs> um so all the other oysters we've named there might be a few other in there uh we'll have chestnut chestnut mushroom talk mushrooms lion's mane um we've dabbled a little bit with um a few cousins of lion's mane called uh combs um there's other reishi turkey tail cordyceps these are all medicinal those are the medicinal primarily ones. medicinal species yeah yeah um in the spring we'll be going growing some more woodier mushrooms oh yeah the woodier like, That's look the like an ones. ear basically and yeah. they're like this kind of gelatinous looking mushroom that um it's basically like cartilage this is the texture the yeah. best way to describe it yeah. pretty flavorless but pretty pretty cool just yeah. because it's so different we've only had um ones from the wild that uh, friends have collected for us and the ones we grew this year um our rooms were just too cold by the time we started it so we didn't know that they needed like warmer temps so we'll we have the culture saved and we'll probably do it again in the spring and hopefully have a little bit better results with it but yeah it was just a little too cold when we started it yeah we have like a generalized approach to growing where uh we have a lot of different species in a single room so we have to make compromises, I guess, with yields for certain species because um, 
you know, all, all the parameters of each species has to overlap, which means that some of them are getting their ideal temperatures and others are getting like, oh, maybe the border of they need warmer, but that's as cold as they'll go and still produce. Uh, Whittier, unfortunately, at the time that we started growing, just needed something warmer. But we're, we're definitely excited to uh, start producing that one in the spring and see how it does in our rooms at that point. I think it'll do pretty well. A new one as well this year that we'll be doing not not so much in our grow rooms but on dowels and probably hopefully outside we'll do some blocks is um chicken in the woods which is a foraged one that um grows on like dead or dying wood so any of those kinds of species you can technically cultivate in a lab any of these species including morels some that are thought to not be like um, that you can't really cultivate but you usually can't fruit them so they might need an association with a living plant outside um, usually though you can produce spawn for i think all species yeah yeah you can produce spawn for including mycorrhizal species, species which yeah. are mycorrhizal being those ones that need a living plant in order to grow the ones that we cultivate and fruit inside are those that grow on wood or saprotrophic specifically ours grow on wood um and so they're able to fruit indoors they don't need like um you know an, um, another organism to associate with they don't need um, a living plant species king's trifaria which ivan mentioned earlier well, as one of the species that we grow um it grows outdoors and garden beds it's a saprotroph so it it decomposes wood and soil but it needs like um, a microorganism to associate with it to fruit um, so some people grow it indoors by putting on top of the wood, it's called a casein layer. So they'll put, put soil basically on top of it. And some people have success that way. Um, the other way to get success with that one indoors is to transfer mycelium from your outdoor beds, uh, and put those on plates. So you can start them indoors in a lab, uh, but until they make it outdoors and then come back indoors, they won't. They won't produce like uh, we haven't looked too much into the King's Trifaria, but out of what I've looked into anyhow, uh, that was one of the strategies to getting it to fruit indoors. Um, recently, actually, uh, the Danish project, um, uh, some twins in the Netherlands developed a, a way to produce morels indoors, which is really cool. Something to look forward to in the next uh, short while, because I'm sure that's going to explode at least maybe only in the netherlands i'm not sure if they're gonna be exporting any of that here but i think we'll start seeing that on the market and that's been ongoing like people have been cultivating morels or slash trying to cultivate morels indoors and outdoors for years and in china they've probably done a really good job but they haven't they're necessarily doing yeah. straight shared the strains with with growers around the world so we can't necessarily access those strains that are going to fruit inside so it's so all, and it, a lot of it's patented um, techniques and things like that. So, yeah. yeah. So we wouldn't necessarily be able to purchase those strains. Or the, or the techniques to doing it. Actually, an interesting thing with that Danish project is they chose not to patent their techniques because of the access that certain folks might have to those patents prior to, to like actual patenting. Like while it's in the process of patenting, Right. Apparently you can, you can have access to that information. And uh, they did a post on that on Instagram worth checking out. Anyways, just an interesting 
inner workings thing I found anyhow. Well, it seems like, uh, like mushrooms, the, what kind of got me interested into them a little bit more was, uh, I, I seen an interview with Paul Stamets and, uh, he's yeah. a guy, I mean, he's as good a spokesperson for mushrooms as probably anybody. Like he, he kind of reminds me of like, uh, I guess his name's Radagast from the Lord of the Rings, like the Brown wizard. he shows up with his hat which is made out of mushroom and then he tells you like these amazing stories and tells you what mushrooms do and how they're like there's something like i almost never ever thought of really and then you realize what sort of function they 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 hold in nature and what balance they kind of keep and um it was it's kind of interesting that say china would uh have a way to sort of grow those inside because i think it's a bigger part of their culture too like they they utilize the Mm -hmm medicinal uses and stuff like that it's a lot it's a big part of their dishes and stuff too i think yeah actually all of asia uh mushrooms in all of asia are just it's a big part of the culture much more than it is here Mm. so like you think like southeast asia also um just just asia in general has a fantastic mushroom culture Mm. um yeah and like um, europeans eastern europeans Oh, okay. So just Take well, care prob- as well. probably more by the proximity, right? Like if, if it's more people in Asia, especially as you go out, you probably still have some contact with that sort of inner culture. Yeah, movement. that's fair. Yeah. Um, so like some of the medicinal ones there, like some of them, you guys make into tinctures there. So is a lot of that sort of supplemental? Is that sort of like, uh, you know, you got some inflammation, use this, or is there some variation in the kinds and how you would use them? Um. When you, sorry, supplemental like to our business or supplemental for like a person's diet? Or oh, something? yeah, sorry. Uh, supplemental to like, say your diet, like a health supplement kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so some of them, like a lot of the medicinal ones, like I haven't mentioned the reishi, it's not really a palatable mushroom to eat. So it wouldn't really be something that you could get into your diet without it being in like a supplement yeah. or a tincture form, right? So you can right. toss it in like a, a broth or something like that, but you're not going to really want to have that one um so and a lot of the medicinals are like that they're not really palatable turkey tails like a tough polypore as well chaga you guys have probably heard of or at least seen is like this rock hard um sclerotia sclerotia it's uh, a different organ on the on the fungus um and uh yeah so a lot of them are are um that's the only way to really get them into your diet is through tinctures some, or yeah, sort of an extract. extract. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's supplemental. I mean, uh, if you cook and eat mushrooms, you're absorbing a lot of those beneficial nutrients that they have to offer anyways. Right. So a lot of the gourmets overlap like lion's mist one, um, even cordyceps, actually people will eat cordyceps. Um, I, I've heard it's not as great fresh, it's not bad in a they're, tincture. They're developing. Um, so in North America, some of the largest growers are in the United States. And they basically developed the market for cordyceps here in the West. And part of that is, um, has to do with recipes and cooking and stuff like that too, because it's not currently being used that way. And I think they're just trying to, develop more of a market for it so not just for for tinctures uh the other thing i wanted to touch on is uh how like it is supplemental to a diet because um it's not magic 
I don't know if I hit that hard enough. Maybe the delivery wasn't, but um, you still have to have like a good diet for it to work, right? Yeah. right? Yeah. Like you can't you you can't be eating Burger King and and chocolate bars and then take a dropper of cordyceps and you know run a mile or whatever. Yeah, like it's so definitely it works. It helps most, most of these medicinals are all uh, immune boosting. And, and then they all, they also play into like, uh, like cordyceps interrupts this metabolic. Anyways, I'm not going to get into the whole thing. It's a whole other discussion, but, or we can get into it. After. I'd actually like to kind of hear that. That's uh, cause I find that really interesting. Yeah. So um, there's this metabolic pathway. So some of this stuff isn't, I'm just kind of regurgitating from what I've read. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so in joints, there's this uh, there's this compound that crystallizes on on joints, which makes it hard. Like, uh, what's that? It like aggravates your yeah. It, it'll aggravate arthritis or or just cause general joint pain and stuff like that. And whatever that process that causes that crystallization of that compound. Um, cordyceps has been shown to interrupt that metabolic pathway therefore reducing that compound on your joints or whatever right. but in so that's one of the benefits to it but in addition to that it's just like it's a fantastic immune booster that chaga um reishi uh oh god like all of them even lion's mane which has been shown like i'm sure if you've watched an interview with uh, paul stamets i'm sure he talked about uh, the cognitive benefits to using lion's mane yep so like in addition to just having a fantastic immune boosting potential it also does that you know it, it helps improve cognitive impairment mild cognitive impairment um They've used it in treatments for neurodegenerative diseases. Um, there's a lot of information out there, like peer-reviewed journals, that type of information. There's also a lot of information like Joe Blow put something on his website yeah. without any reference. So I would just steer clear of Joe Blow's website and go straight to Google Scholar for any information on that. Um, yeah, I can't even remember how we got on that topic. Uh, we were talking about the medicinal uh, uses of them. And I was asking if they were supplemental to diet. And then, uh, yeah, then, then you got go. into how right. the cordyceps interrupted that process there. Yeah. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention about, uh, so Brittany was saying that a lot of them aren't palatable. <laughs> so uh, David Aurora is one of those reference books on identifying mushrooms. And in there, he has a passage talking about how to prepare turkey tail to make it edible because mm -hmm. it's so, um, tough. yeah, it's very tough. It's very tough. So his recommendations are a slow boil for 69 hours. Wow. wow. I, don't, I don't even know. His whole book is hilarious. Like he throws a lot of <clears throat> funny passages in there. He's just a funny writer. Yeah. Um, so I'm half inclined to believe that he's serious though. <laughs> to, to make it edible like that you have to boil it for 69 hours yeah yeah <laughs> so it just goes to show like you can't eat these mushrooms you do extracts with them and that's that's how you benefit from using these yes yeah, um, i wanted 
I wanted to mention something a little bit general about mushrooms from that. So mushrooms then, um, the reason we talk about making extracts and these kinds of things so often is that consuming mushrooms raw is generally not, um, you're not going to get uh, most of the nutrients out of them. So they have chitin in the cell walls. Um, so usually when we cook them, we rupture the cell wall and that allows us to access those nutrients a lot easier. Um, so I, I don't know exactly what the percentage is, but we would access about 5% of the nutrients if you're consuming raw mushrooms. And often there's actually compounds that can be uh, problematic, Never mind. Um, so like agaricus mushrooms. So like the white button grocery store mushrooms have some hydrazine or hydrazine and, precursor that yeah. can be carcinogenic. So um, hydrazine precursor called agaritine uh, that's present in all agaricus species. Okay. Um, yeah. So generally speaking, cooking your mushrooms, which is not always um, common knowledge, I guess. A lot of people eat raw mushrooms um, and all, often people are on raw, raw diets. So assume that not cooking um, your food is a better way to acquire the nutrients. But in, in the case of mushrooms, it is not. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and then doing a full extract for if it, you were just looking for medicinal properties um, is gonna give you access to most all those nutrients um, and then cooking them is going to be somewhere in between because usually when we do a stir fry or something like that we don't do a full extract we'll do like um you know just enough to break the cell walls and cook the mushrooms fully so um, just add something else to that um when we do our features actually i'll step back um certain compounds uh degrade at certain temperatures right yeah right so you just don't get the full benefits from it. So if you, sometimes you can cook your mushrooms lightly and you get more benefit from them. Other times you just want, like, it doesn't always have to be super healthy. Sometimes you can just have junk food. Mm -hmm. So you can batter them and deep fry them and they're awesome. Right. But chances are you're probably not getting all that good stuff because, you know, you've, Canceled you, it out. Yeah, you deep fried them. So yeah. they're super delicious that way though. But with your um with your extracts, and, and this is the way we do we do our extracts, our tinctures is uh through a double extraction procedure. So certain compounds are soluble in water, others are soluble in alcohol. Um, so we start the process off with a hot ethanol extraction. And again, it's hot because you need that heat to, to break down those cell walls to extract everything out of them. And when I say hot, I mean like, like alcohol boils off at 78 Celsius or something like that. Um, so it's not even boiling temperature yet. So a lot of those compounds are preserved because you're not hitting, uh, you know, these hundred and whatever temperatures. Right. Um, and it's probably also worth mentioning that the compounds that are soluble in alcohol probably don't, they're probably not, or, or they're more sensitive than the ones that you would extract in water, right? Because those water soluble compounds are only going to come out once you, you have like a, you don't necessarily want to get it to a boil, but just below a boil. 
just mm-hmm. to be able to, to extract that. So those compounds are probably preserved in the hot water because that's what's required of them. Uh, folks are also doing cold water extractions. Uh, so some tinctures talk about triple extractions and those are to, uh, those are to capture all those volatile compounds, um, terpenes, specifically monoterpenes uh, and sesquiterpenes. So what those are, if you're standing over my booth summertime or you're walking towards it you can smell you know mushrooms like um, sometimes it's a spicy smell uh, depending on the species actually if it's pink oyster smell you might be smelling dead fish or urine which is why we only do that one occasionally it's a hard sell you know middle of summer (laughs) no really trust me wait (laughs) that's right it tastes a lot better than that I, i swear it does um but some of these some of these mushrooms have like a really pleasant smell, and uh, these smells are used to attract um, pollinators because they're not actually pollinating, but they're just bugs that'll help carry the spores from one area to another. Um, and the cold water extract actually helps preserve those and extract those without losing those volatile compounds because the temperature isn't quite high enough to boil those off, right? Mm-hmm. So interesting fact that's i guess that's uh on topic yeah so like what what got you guys into mushrooms because like when i looked into it a little bit i found there was uh you had to have some like uh it seemed a bit technical or maybe i was just intimidated by it but it seemed like especially when you're starting out with uh you need to have like you said the the hepa filtered area so that it's all there's no contaminants and all that kind of stuff and so like what 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 what, what got you guys guys Oh my goodness, I can't talk. <laughs> what got you guys Coffee. into it? <laughs> what got you guys into it? You start. You start. Yeah. I only got into it because of Ivan. Um, Dragged her down. Yeah. Or up. Whatever. So this is really Ivan's story. Um, so I struggle with this one because there's, there's a story that I'll tell. Ah, damn. You know what? I'm just going to say it. So in high school, I grew magic mushrooms. Okay. And I was very successful at it. Uh, And at some point I was like, I'm old enough that I shouldn't be growing magic mushrooms. I should try my hand at something else. And at that point I was already, I was into uh, the whole resiliency and and self-sustainability. So I thought, yeah, and I was into permaculture, started reading about that. So it just kind of fit in. It went, it, uh, it developed, I guess, or, you know, matured along with me, but definitely it was because of the success and the confidence that growing magic mushrooms instilled. Um, and I just took it from there. And you know what? I think I'll, I can almost guarantee that with 90% of growers, I'm throwing that number, like just whatever I'm throwing a high number out there. But most of their origin stories is probably with with magic mushrooms. Um, oh, that, that's that. funny too because I remember with Paul Stamets and his story. One of his stories, he talks about. Um, I think he had read a book about ethnogens or something like that, and then yeah, he, uh, he got a hold of some mushrooms and he didn't know the dose and he took like I think he guessed like twenty five grams. <laughs> And yeah. then he found himself stuck atop a tree in the middle of a thunderstorm and had this like crazy spiritual experience. And he had a speech impediment, which made him stutter. 
and yeah. he stopped stuttering that after that day because he had this moment i guess up in the tree where he was thinking to himself like how silly is this i'm going to die up in this tree in this thunderstorm and i can't even talk right to people and so he's told yeah. himself he was going to stop stuttering and he imprinted that in his mind and then he and then he stopped doing that but it seems like him and a lot of other guys that are uh in, involved in that area like yeah you're right it does seem to start around mm -hmm. magic mushrooms and i mean it's yeah. It's kind of interesting, too, because if you look at especially our ancestors and different cultures all over the world, it's a crucial part of something that built our culture. I mean, there's mm. some people who suppose that the fly agaric might be uh, where our Christmas baubles come from, that the fly agaric may have been dried on evergreen trees for Yule. And uh, there's, yeah. there's other suggestions like, say, I think in the Indian tradition that Soma might have been something like a fly agaric or, or something like that. So... I, I, yeah. I don't think it's really a coincidence that you find that it, it seems to be more of a pattern, right? Yeah. That and uh, the stoned ape theory is a good one too. Yeah. McKenna. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure where I stand on all these. Like they're, uh, they're a little fantastical. Yeah. And like, I want to believe them. I think, I think they're amazing theories. Um. You just don't know how well supported they are. Yeah, they're yeah. well, yeah. And and I can buy into something without it being well supported, but I just think there's so much more to it than it it can't just like they oversimplify evolution, I feel. Yeah. Like, it can't possibly just be a a group of early humans following a herd and and, yeah. and picking mushrooms off their crap, you know, like it <laughs> <laughs> no you're right you're right there, there's there gotta be more to it than that and that's why we are the way we are like, yeah, uh, yeah possibly possibly because once you do take them you do have those uh you know they're very it's that uh what's the word for when you have those religious um spiritual experience religious, uh, yeah like epiphany? a spiritual experience what's epiphany? that epiphany maybe uh, yeah, like a spiritual epiphany or a spiritual awakening or or like an encounter with uh, with God or whatever. Right. Um, but actually, there's no but. I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah, I mean, uh, you're, you're kind of right to point that out, too. Like, it, it is a bit fantastical in a way. But uh, like me, as a, I've had experience with uh, magic mushrooms before. And like it was... And it wasn't even like a big dose or nothing like that. But it, for me, it, was it wasn't 25 grams. No, certainly not. Certainly not. But, <laughs> yeah. but it, what it did, I found for me was I was walking home from a friend's house and I, I looked at my uh, childhood school and it was like nighttime and the way it was lit up. And it was to me, it was like it just made it look so different, made me kind of think about the school different. It just mm. there was there was just something about it that uh, I don't know. I, I feel like it was a worthwhile experience. Like I feel like I got something positive out of it. And, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. that's, that's all anecdotal, right? I just know that there's some, there seems to be a fair amount of people who have anecdotally good experiences with it. I just, yeah. I just find it's, uh, it's interesting that that happens there, but like, you, but you are right. You know, it's, you don't want to read into it too much. You want to kind of try to be as sort of scientific thinking about it as you can be. Yeah. And, and I'm willing to concede that at some point it's possible that, uh, you know, logic gives way to something more fantastical, I guess. 
or at least at the very least that it would seem fantastical based on our understanding, our current understanding of something without getting into too much. Ah, shoot. There was something else I wanted to mention. Um, oh, you said it's all anecdotal, but there is empirical evidence with, uh, um, with benefits to magic mushrooms right now. Um, a lot of studies are being done at John Hopkins uh, and, and other places. Yeah, there's that MAPS study, I think it is there. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah and that's in conjunction with uh, psychotherapy too, right? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, uh, not necessarily, no. but that's another thing that people have been saying they do with, uh, with psilocybin or other, other right. ones where they microdose. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know much about yeah. how much they're studying that, but yeah, I, I haven't read too much of, uh, of that, but as far as like PTSD relief, mm -hmm. um, addictions, depression, I think this one's more anecdotal. Like somebody told me at the market that it was, there was something about schizophrenia, but I'm, I'm more likely to lean towards uh, it might produce schizophrenia as opposed to, to prevent it like early onset in the same way that cannabis, yeah, that cannabis use could cause early onset schizophrenia. If it runs in the family, if you have a family history of it yeah. and psychosis, wow. that's right. That certainly makes sense. Cause you think about like, um, say your subjective experience as a person versus what you believe reality to be right and if you're messing around with these substances you can kind of split a rift between what is you know objective reality and what you experience it as such yeah and that, that yeah. kind of makes sense where it would kind of split your psyche like that i'm just thinking for the for maybe being schizophrenic right yeah mm -hmm. i have a friend that's uh he's not he's not schizophrenic so i not, I'm not trying to make light of that situation, but as far as the rift goes, I feel like he's living in between like a, like a limbo mm -hmm. between reality and that rift. Um, Some people suggest that like, uh, <laughs> well, I think it was uh, Graham Hancock, one of his books that he wrote, it was called Supernatural. And he talked about like in some societies where they had, say, shaman, that was sort of the role the, sh the shaman would occupy. He was basically the person who would go between the land yeah. of the living and the land of the dead. And because that the idea, I think, is as you keep going back to the land of the dead, you kind of maybe leave a little part of you behind and you sort of live in both worlds. Like I think uh, in some, yeah. some cultures, they even suggested that the shaman would have marriages in these altered states or in these altered realms and so they would have a spouse that existed in this other reality or experiential reality and there's a lot of really interesting stuff with human history and human psychology and how how all these things kind of develop together we're we're, yeah. we're pretty interesting when you when you look at us i think yeah no without a doubt without a doubt um yeah, we went off on a tangent there, though. Suddenly, yeah. our growing, our growing experiment was uh, our trip experiment, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I kind of uh, fall into tangents sometimes. I'm bad for that. Oh, I love it. I love it. That's uh, that's basically every conversation with me, ever. Yeah. We might start talking about mushrooms and end up talking about exactly that. Well, I mean, that's not such a far leap, yeah. but. Um, yeah, that's every conversation with me. So I welcome that. Yeah. And, uh, 
like for me, like uh, even if there's some parts of that that's fantastical too, it also makes me think that because um, we've understudied a lot of these things and like say even just uh, medicinal mushrooms in the Western culture, that's a technology that basically we've underutilized, right? Especially when you consider how much it's used in Eastern cultures. And then yeah. it goes the same too for like, um, well, some people say part of what happened in the 1960s was in part due to the exposure of say LSD and psilocybin. And so that might be another technology that, you know, if used properly could aid in the further development of sort of human and human culture. Right. Yeah. And Are I you think, talking about like a uh, civil movements? Oh, uh, I think some people think, well, at least there was two things going on at the same time that there were people in the civil movements in the sixties, say in the States, and there was a lot of use of psychedelic drugs. And yeah. some people think that there might be a sort of correlation. They were at least happening at the same time. And yeah. I wonder if maybe that's where some of the, the strict clampdown happened, right? Because if un, unmitigated, that sort of technology mm. can totally upend the culture, right? Yeah. So, but right. it might be something that we're learning now in conjunction with psychotherapy in the proper set and setting that might actually be a useful tool for helping people with PTSD and other sort of uh, traumas or, or, or whatever else. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, yeah. I think. Uh, <laughs> well, it does make sense that you kind of started there and the skills just kind of transferred, right? Like it's probably. Yeah, that's right. Thank you, Sophia. I couldn't remember how we got on that, but that's exactly where it was. Yeah. Right. So, so that's basically how I started, uh, and then, uh, like I said, I just it, it evolved uh, from what well, didn't evolve because it's the same thing. But I mean, I just moved from magic mushrooms to uh, to gourmet mushrooms and medicinal mushrooms, and mm -hmm. started learning about all that stuff. And a lot of that is due to like falling down a rabbit hole starting out with Paul Stamets and then Trad Cotter and Peter McCoy and all these other um, leaders in the industry, at, at least spokespeople for the industry. Yeah. Uh, those folks don't actually, I don't think they lead any of the research themselves. Hmm. Um, I could be wrong there, but I'm, I'm fairly certain that they don't. Right. Yeah. yeah, well, it's it's uh, it's kind of cool how life journeys kind of go like that, right? You start off in one place and you just got to kind of keep keep going forward. And then you, you turn yeah. what you were doing into something else. And it's I don't know, you always kind of take the past with you a little bit when you go forward. But it's like, yeah, yeah, I think the other leap to to this life was how much I've been hated mining. Yeah, being underground. Okay. Um, everything about it. Yeah, it's not even so, just that I like. It wasn't the mining itself I hated. It was just like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, there was that too, and and just the environment, like uh, weird shift work. Yeah, I don't want to shit on 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 miners. Sorry, I guess I just dropped the s bomb. That's I right. hope we can edit that out. That's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, you spent. 20 minutes saying the magic money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's no big deal. <laughs> Your audience that you're targeting, but it's probably not six-year-olds. Yeah. Oh, no, no, yeah, that's no. fair. It, it, it's like, I mean, we, we try to sort of uh, talk in a way that appeals to everybody, but like maybe it's because of, of the amount of things that I've read and looked into where to me talking about sort of a pseudo-spiritual uh, experience with uh, 
ethnogens or whatever to me that doesn't seem like too edgy like to me that's just like yeah i don't know it's just an interesting thought and maybe maybe that's not uh how everybody feels about it so maybe my uh, my tolerance for like what's weird or unacceptable is kind of high i think that's becoming more mainstream uh every day every day new research comes out how uh how these how these compounds are are helping us and having these open conversations with yeah also having having these conversations definitely helps out as well yeah yeah um, all right, back to mining. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's not that I uh, I just didn't like how what it brought out in me. I guess you know there's a lot of money to be made. There's a lot of money to be made in mining, uh, and when you're not making, it was my son, and yeah, it just brings out in some people myself uh not your best self and i didn't like that and so i decided to just not do it and there's a whole bunch of reasons some i'd just rather not get into yeah that's fine but uh yeah, yeah. but then so and then came 2014 and i went to business course had the opportunity to business course right. learning, called learning initiatives in Sudbury. Yeah. um and so he spent however long there's a 42-week condensed course. Um, and through that, was able to write a business plan. Um, they helped him apply for an OHFC grant, like edited the grant and yeah. the business plan and just feedback throughout the whole thing. Um, and then by 2015, we got grant approval to build the building. That's right. And, um, and it was under construction by... That same year we started, but it wasn't really grow ready until I've been called it grow ready by 2017. 2017, yeah. yeah. So it took a while. There was a lot of bumps along the way. Some of them unexpected, like just trying to get insurance was was actually a pretty big hurdle. It took us several months to be able to find somebody who would actually insure us. And living where we live, finding contractors to do some of the work that Ivan mm -hmm. couldn't do himself was a little bit trickier. But mm -hmm. one of the a great memory of the construction was we had all our friends and family out to do a barn raising kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. So our build our mushroom building to paint a picture is uh, like a steel building, it's twelve hundred square feet um it's well insulated it's on a permanent pad so we heat the we heat the pad with the outside wood boiler so that we heat it using almost entirely renewable materials um and so this steel building basically we had the pad poured um and then we had everybody out to kind of construct this this steel building so that was really cool so it was like it's 14 feet peaks so yeah everyone was just like i don't it was a great weekend. We had we invited people up for one day, expecting that like we would be working on it for the re remainder of the week. And, we actually um, put two pieces together that day. And then everybody came, put the pieces together, and then some people like wanted to come back the following day, um, just because like they just loved helping yeah. us. And it they was very nice. Yeah, it was just a really cool community and family spirit. So. Um, but uh, yeah, so then we were at Grow Ready in 2017. Um, the building itself has uh, everything you need to grow. So we, we did a lot of things wrong with the building and a lot of things right. Um, so we have a certified kitchen in there. So we're able to like any excess mushrooms we have, we can dry um, or do 
whatever we want with like um we just made a mushroom soup over the holidays and froze that um lots of different products that we have like to use with our mushrooms hold on you can't make that noise um and then uh yeah we've got our lab space we talked about so mushrooms need a sterile environment to to start out anyways um so that lab is equipped with uh two laminar flow hoods now yeah. um we've got a room to incubate and then a few rooms to actually fruit and then a walk-in cooler so that's and, the processing. and then our processing room which is like a, the biggest room where we do the sterilizing of everything from grain to the wood to packing mushroom orders to yeah yeah everything it's a tight space it's 1200 square feet and we fit all that into it uh so sometimes uh yeah so when i say we didn't do everything right like you know storage definitely was not considered yeah. enough for yeah. what but i think in a lot of ways it's good because we probably were under ambitious as to what the amount of mushrooms we could grow in this space and ambitious as to them or like under uh, estimated the market potential too yeah. so yeah um yeah and also like uh ingenuity comes out of necessity right yeah so everything that we didn't quite think out we've had to find workarounds or just uh yeah so kind of a silver lining with the whole thing yeah. well it's kind of fun when you're trying to do something new and you start off first where you have no idea what to do and then you sort of get an idea and you start going forward and as you go forward like you said the necessity thing it teaches you something right you're like oh i have to do this thing and nobody else is going to do it so now i have to learn how to do this yeah. and it's right. actually those challenges that kind of build up the character of who you become in a way too and it's it's yeah. it sort of sounds like um that maybe like doing what you're doing now is maybe more fulfilling in some capacity than what you were doing before. And maybe that's the added value that you get out of it. I think that seems yeah. common in everyone that we've talked to so far. It seems like there is a, a deep sense of fulfillment in this sort of idea of uh, being more uh, in, in, in line with nature. Uh, symbiotic is the word I was looking for with nature where you're kind of living with nature or like for us, for example, like um, we've been trying to locally source all of our food for, yes. I guess, the last year, really. We've we've got uh, our freezer stocked up with local animals. Uh, we try to buy local veggies when we can. And we're we're just trying to be as local as we can, because we we also believe, too, with this idea of food security and stuff like that, that we really need to help support these people who are going out and doing this hard work and making sure we do have animals here. Mm -hmm. But it's like... Um, it's, it's more fulfilling to me when I eat those animals. It's, it just seems like, yeah. um, it seems like a, a, a better way to be. It just seems like a more uh, humane way to live in a sense. Like it, it, it feels good to me that I know that someone maybe is, is earning their living wage off of doing this and then they're feeding me. And I'm like, you know, there's a, there's a relationship there and it's, it, it just, it seems more fulfilling. And I think I get that out of uh, a lot of people that we talk to that are sort of in this space to the degree that it's like one space yeah i find that really interesting and actually while you were saying that i uh i thought so in addition to all like the nutritive value of all these foods you get this this additional nutrition um where you feel like you're supporting someone you feel good about the food you're eating not only is the food you're eating good and and 
I think it's arguable that it's higher in nutrition because it spends less time traveling. It's, it's fresher. Um, not only is it more nutrition, nutritive, nutritious, uh, but you also feel good about it. So I wonder like to what degree that plays a role in, in, uh, in your feel, yeah. And you're, you're just feeling well healthy being, about it yeah. or well, just not feeling healthy, being healthy, actual. It's, it would always be like, um, like how they have uh, for a control, they always have the placebo group, right? Because there's some people when you have a test of a, say, a new drug, you got to have a group of people that believe they're getting the drug that aren't actually getting the drug. And even some of the people yeah. who don't get the drug will show improvement because they believe they're getting something that will help them improve. So maybe yeah, there is yeah. something behind the intentionality of it, right? When you have that yeah. food on your plate, you look at it and you remember, oh, I got this from, I got this chicken from Hapa Flocka or whatever, right? And you're like, you remember yeah. seeing them and you remember all that. And then you eat the food. Maybe it's almost like sort of like the idea of grace where you give thanks for your food, right? You're sort of there bringing you that into the actual buying of the food too. And it's not necessarily like consciously you're doing it, but even by acting it out, you are doing some form of that. Yeah. But I, I think maybe that's part of the, the nutrition that's added to it that way too, where maybe, you know, it's all in your head, but you know, maybe that's not a zero, zero sum. You know what I mean? That's right. Yeah. You said you got into doing this as well because you were looking at like a more uh, self-reliance lifestyle and everything. So do you guys do anything else uh, at your farm that's kind of supporting you guys? So all of our garden beds now have, um, we have a pretty good big garden. Some years it varies, it be bigger depending on how crazy the kids are and how much time they spend at home. Um, yeah. But all of our mushroom or all of our gardens have mushrooms in them now. So every bed has kingshirferia. We have buried um, toffee logs or very, very she logs. Um, some of our garden beds now are actually just made up of mushroom compost blocks. So it's wood blocks and then we top our compost with it. Um, but yeah, so we, we garden a lot. Our animals are all gone now. We did all the small game, uh, like laying hens and um, uh, we had rabbits for a little while. Yeah, I guess it's worth mentioning that when we started the whole thing, uh, the intention was to do everything, have animals, have market gardens, have mushrooms. Um, and then it became painfully obvious that that was a lot to balance when you're first starting out. Uh, and, and given like, the steep learning curve of all those things. But for me going from like growing an amount of mushrooms for just our consumption to growing like uh, a small scale commercial amount, uh, there, just a steep learning curve. So anyways, we put everything off. Uh, all the animals were, you know, we got rid of everyone, the market garden we do, for personal so we don't uh you know if we have to let it go one year because we're super busy or something comes up you know we don't have to feel bad about not having that as part of our revenue um but we do raise animals for ourselves here because we We've have come the property. back now that we're a little yeah. more established in our growing to start doing that again um yeah. we did have lane hens last year but they're they're all gone now and we yeah. just started doing chickens again 
meat chickens for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, but no other, like definitely no other business things, but we're always trying to homestead and build. Yeah. 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 So this, our neighbor is doing pork, like a few houses down. So I love to make soap as one of my homesteading activities. So we just traded a bunch of lard and for bird feeders and soap. And I just gave her a whole bunch of soap back. It's kind of like a nice exchange and trade. And yeah, um, yeah. so I think we, we definitely do that. Um, a lot of other aspects next, next year, hopefully we'll be getting, um, it actually goes right with our mushroom compost, because like I said, it's all made out of wood and the mushrooms are degrading the wood. Um, but there's not as much nitrogen in them at that point. Um, so we're going to top the beds with uh, another neighbor does cattle. So we'll get some compost manure from them and top the beds and do some hugel mounds, um, that hopefully the mushrooms will keep breaking down that wood, um, as they're capped and kind of heating the beds. So just to step back from that, uh, the blocks that we grow on, mm. uh, that's what we're going to be building our hugel mounds with. Are you guys familiar with hugel mounds? No, no. Or I guess I, I guess I could just clear it up too for anybody who's listening who might not be familiar with it. Um, basically, it's a buried log, or, or it's a mound of soil, but in the center you have you have like woody material, right. and the idea there is that it uh, provides heat, provides uh, habitat for um, microorganisms, microorganisms, microorganisms yeah. yeah, and that it degrades slowly, right? So yeah. that's why it's usually woody material, not just like manure or something like that. Yeah, so that that's right. It doesn't so generate it, heat for a long, it generates heat quickly, but not extended Yeah. period. Also water retention uh, And then it lifts up your bed. So it's also the practical function of yeah. it being like if you fill rather than like soil is fairly hard to come by unless you're doing happen to be very fortunate and live by like you know a yeah farm that is is producing yeah like a lot of compost but um so filling it with like a woody waste material also elevates it so you've got these nice raised beds and potentially they could be as like you know shoulder level so that you're harvesting things that are not low to the ground taking carrots out of the so instead of using uh, the trees uh, or logs to fill out the center of those hugel mounds, um, that's what Brittany was saying. We're using our spent blocks. So the wood substrate that we create after we've done a couple flushes off them, a few flushes, uh, we then put them in the center of, we, we build these beds with them. And right. that's what she's saying. We're gonna we're gonna cover those beds with uh, like compost and uh, compost yeah. manure, and have those as our garden beds in the spring. Hopefully, they should be ready now. So yeah, um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, they're a little ways from being ready, but uh, definitely something for, that we're looking forward to do to doing. Every year, we add more gardens, more yeah. stuff like that, more fruit yeah. trees. More yeah. fruit trees um, is one. That was the hardest thing to really come to terms with because you, you buy. So anybody who gets into this has this romantic notion of farming, right? Yep. Um, Unless you grew up on a farm, I feel like there's not a complete understanding of the work that you need to do to get that, that outcome, that final product. Um, 
oh shoot i don't even know what i was going into with that oh yeah just like doing all these things getting a little bit done each year as opposed to trying to do it all in one year uh coming to terms with that was hard because you have these ideas this grand notion of what it's going to be and you want it to be that now Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah but like mental health wise you just have to embrace the fact that it's going to take a few years before you get there yeah and then you get to enjoy the ride a little bit better too. yeah yeah Uh, you get to be more present yeah as opposed to that's one thing we learned we've got a lot of different types of animals and threw up gardens and garden sheds to support them and things like that all over the place when we first bought our farm and then quickly realized oh this isn't like the best functionality or the best flow like uh you know, so a lot of those kinds of things then, oh, this animals maybe like need something different than what we can give them, but without spending thousands of dollars, we're not going to be able to get there. So a lot of the animals we sold or got rid of and, um, um, yeah, have simplified and now are a lot more thoughtful and intentional as we expand, um, and like plan out these things. And we try and usually, are a lot more thoughtful when it comes to living things. So like you can plan a garden bed somewhere and then decide, eh, like we're yeah. going to move this yeah. or whatever. Like, um, but now when it comes to like the living things, you're like, we want to have it like a really good setup now. Yeah. We yeah. don't want to just learn on the fly. Anymore. More proactive than reactive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And, and like you said, too, having to refocus in a sense and, and build in on that core of what you're trying to do and then start expanding out from that again, you start to look at, too, like, well, how, how can I make this fit in here where it's not a big stress adder, but I get a lot of value out of it? Or, you know, what what's yeah. an output that I can put into this new thing that I want to be doing now? And so it's like yeah. an emergent project after you kind of get started doing something. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing is like, we know so many farmers in the area now too, that we also, with our, we also eat almost entirely local within, within what we can, right? Like fruit and things like that are kind of tricky. And we have kids that just like, yeah, nobody's growing mangoes yet. I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> huge market, huge market guys. Anybody listening to this, yeah. so, <laughs> you know, berry farmers and stuff like that, that we're really yeah. fortunate to have close, but um and those freeze pretty good, but you know, other things as well that you can send in lunches and things. Um, and so we try and focus on the things that people aren't doing really well already in our area. Like, you know, we've got a lot of carrot and potato farmers and things like that, that, um, or certain specialty produce that we're not, that we can't really get, you know, um, our friends also grow lettuce, um, hydroponically year round. So we're not going to, like struggle with those kinds of trickier things but yeah well that's a good point too yeah because like then when you're when if you say start out in the beginning like you want to do everything and you realize that's kind of hard to do that and then as you get more involved in the community you realize oh maybe I actually don't have to worry about say growing lettuce I don't have to worry about growing potatoes but hey I really like having peppers so I'll have a garden here that Mm -hmm. grows all my peppers and so so then it's actually cool too because then you end up fitting right into a community right there too and there's a natural relationship between helping each other fill each other's wants and needs yeah that's a principle in permaculture actually like communities uh is is one of your main uh principles in that and and exactly for that reason uh you don't have to do everything if somebody else is already doing it you want to be self-sustainable if you have a community, uh, 
you know, we can lean on each other. What you're not good at, I might be good at. Uh, yeah. So that goes a long way. And, and that's the other thing about like podcasts, like your or podcasts. Uh, yeah. It's, just yeah a, it's, a podcast. it's a podcast. Yeah. Um, just connecting all these, all these folks with each other that, that maybe haven't connected and just going a long way to creating a community. Like yeah. I feel we have a really good thing in, in, in our area. Yeah. Um, some of the folks at market, uh, I've told me oftentimes, you know, oh, my daughter's living in Ottawa or they're living here, or whatever. And the farmers out there don't have what the farmers here have. Like they're, I've heard them say like, uh, we have a lot of CSA style boxes here. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily just, you know, you get veggies that week, but some of the farmers are organizing and they're actually prepping food. Yeah. Uh, so using local, using local ingredients mm-hmm. um, and partnering and- yeah and, and all these different partnerships are forming and, and collaborations uh yeah so that's, thank you for that that's that's <laughs> what we're trying to do like for us like uh to me like i just i i think i really want that to be the case here like i i it's it's you're right we're lucky and, and we're happy that this happens to be a place where there's a lot of the good roots already there for it. There's already like a, a fairly healthy community doing that. And my hope is that I can get people together talking to each other or expose people to, you know, what people are doing in the area. Cause my hope is that maybe someone hears what you guys are doing and thinks, Oh, maybe I could get a little block and try growing one batch of mushrooms. And then maybe that's something that enriches their life a little bit. And then they think, well, you know, maybe I could get involved in this, this, uh, you know, uh, farmer's market and maybe they start buying stuff at the farmer's market and that's great so like I, I just I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way and as best I can do right now is try to reach out to people and talk to people and I, I think part of what helps sell people on the idea of investing in this is talking to people like you yeah. and I think like your personality shines through and I think also the fact it's like I think a lot of people get really intimidated because there is the big picture at first and then you start getting into it and then you're like, wow, this is really technical and I don't know if I can do any of this. And then I find as we're talking to people, we find a lot of people start off where that's exactly what happens. They take on too much or they uh, start off doing the wrong thing and they mess up and then they learn and they get better. And to me, it's like a little, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of proving the concept by talking to all these people who are doing it. I think it's like sometimes... I would get the impression that a lot of people believe it's not doable and I think it's probably hard, but I think it might be something that's worth the investment. And I think if people can see it, I think they can believe in it. And I think that is some kind of currency in a way where if they believe in it, they'll, they'll put their money there. And that's what I'm hoping to cultivate when I, when I talk to people who are, who are kind of embarking on this journey. Yeah. So I hope that comes through when we're talking to uh, people like you guys. Um, and, and speaking of that, uh, thank you guys for coming and talking to us. And uh, uh, could you guys let uh, anyone who happens to listen to this know where they could uh, get a hold of your mushrooms or reach you? Or Yeah. Um, well, our, our website's probably the best site just because it lists all the different places that we uh, right. attend for markets and where we sell our stuff. Um, so it's at leebarnfarm.com. And if you go to where to find us or find us, I think the button, um, mostly 
Ivan and I ourselves are at the North Bay Farmers Market on Saturdays and Ivan's in the Sudbury Market on Saturdays. Um, but yeah, like for some people like to support us indirectly through attending these restaurants and ordering mushroom dishes that support mm -hmm. us or um, through a third party if they can't make it out on Saturdays. So we've got like a Clip Fork or Seasons Pharmacy in Sudbury that also sell our mushrooms. We also have the Green Shed out in the Valley that's truly Northern. So they have a lot of the dry products, Maple Acres, over in Blind River, uh, they have a lot of our shelf stable products as well. Um, yeah, so there's a few yeah. avenues, and I think, um, you know, sending us a message or checking also. out the website or something like that's probably the best best way. And um, yeah, and we, like you, you kind of alluded to it, we do produce mostly fresh mushrooms and products like that, but we are also. Um, like, uh, because we have our lab space, we can produce all these grow supplies for people. So those that want to do their own mushroom growing, dowels. Um, yeah, dowels, which are like another form of outdoor growing. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different options for people and skill levels too. So the kits are from somebody that's never grown mushrooms. Kids can grow them, um, to, you know, spawn or liquid cultures for those that have done the research and want to kind of take it to the next level, at least maybe for production themselves, not quite for, um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, there's, yeah, anyways, but yeah. So I got your website then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Perfect. perfect. Well, All right, well, thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you guys. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you, uh, nice to meet you guys. Thanks for taking the time yeah. to talk to us. All right, take care. Thank no you guys too. Have a good one. Bye. Yeah, bye.